everyone, and welcome back to Pretend Worlds Real People. <laughs> In the words of so many people <laughs> around me as I grew up, Tyler, you're freaking weird, man. Stop being weird. Ah, but joke's on you guys, that's never going away because I am crazy and I'm a little bit loopy because I filmed today. I'm going back tomorrow for a commercial shoot. It's been a ton of fun. It's really, it's been a busy week and uh, it's it's always those those pitfalls at the beginning of each week where you feel like, uh, you know, most, <laughs> most creatives say, yeah, I'm never going to work again, especially actors. And then uh, something comes up. So we are so thankful for the work. However, it does take a lot out of you on the uh, on the day to day. But I have plenty of energy and loopy silliness for this episode intro because this is a supplemental episode for the week. I, I just I had the great fortune of so many guests for the month of October and we're not done yet. That's the crazy part. <laughs> but I've had so many amazing people just come onto the show, share their story. And I've had so much fun just sitting down and talking with them. I couldn't do it week by week, I had to toss in a few doubles here and there. So uh, that brings me to who I have for this episode. And I love her film, Lucky. I saw Imitation Girl after our interview and absolutely loved it. And I can't wait to see what she does next in the proposed and announced VHS 85. I think that'll be next year. Uh, but we don't have any spoilers for that film, of course. <laughs> it's uh, under lock and key. But I'm so pumped to see what she does with it. Of course, I'm talking about Natasha Komani. She is a screenwriter, a director, and just a, the ultimate creative force in what it means to bring your vision to life from script to screen. And of course, we talk about her upbringing, the fact that her dad is a huge cinephile and had shown her all these really classic movies and how she just really adopted this sort of love for cinema and how that led to, you know, her attending NYU and then eventually going into just making her own films. It was just, it was fantastic talking about not only her career, but uh, the dorky things I like that I like to talk about, like, you know, what she enjoys doing outside of her career and, you know, what her writing process is like when we get to the real nitty gritty of the dorky stuff. So without uh, further ado, Let's jump right in. Let's sit down and let's chat with the amazing Natasha Kermani. Yeah, my name is Natasha Kermani. Um, I'm a writer and director uh, living in Los Angeles. I'm from New York originally, so I would like to make sure <laughs> I'm not from LA, but uh, LA is my adopted home. And um, yeah, I primarily work in, in the feature space and uh, I make genre movies. So sci-fi, horror, all the fun stuff. That is okay. I have to touch on, I've heard this continuously the last few episodes, but why did you leave New York? It seems like everybody who's from there loves it so much. Yeah, New York is amazing. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think um, LA really is still the home for movies. Um, it, it is Hollywood. It is kind of still where everybody is and it is movie town um, in a lot of ways. And so I think, um, you know, my husband is also from New York and uh, we had been working for, for a while in New York and um, we just really felt like we had hit a ceiling there. 
And, you know, we dream of going back, but I think for us, it was like, okay, let's go, let's explore, let's see what opportunities we have in California. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think we've, we've fallen in love with California. The state of California is just absolutely beautiful and um, opened up, I think, a lot of aspects that you don't really have access to in New York, right? Like sort of, yeah. um, you can drive to the mountains in 40 minutes. And, you know, so that, that sort of aspect, I think, was also appealing to us. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, New York will always be where where our hearts are, <laughs> where our hearts <laughs> is. Um, but but uh, also, LA, I think, is changing. I think it's it is becoming a little bit more, um, you know, even just like walkable. I think there's a lot of East Coasters here now, which I'm sure LA people are very upset about. <laughs> um, but you know, I think we sort of bring our our sensibilities a little bit to to the city. But um, yeah, it's just just for work. Yeah. <laughs> Just for <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested in how you even garnered an interest in this industry, or especially as a director as well. When did that start for you? Have you always been someone with that cinematic sensibility? Or was it something you fell into? How did that start for you? Yeah, so um, my mom actually works in. Um, she she was a, a performance artist, so growing up, um, she was on stage quite a bit doing. Um, performance art and and theater and music. Um, so I kind of grew up around stages, I guess, <laughs> um, around music and musicians and artists and, you know, um, performers really. And so I think that was, the arts was always sort of felt like accessible to me in that way. Um, and it felt very comfortable, you know? And so I think that's sort of a huge privilege to have because a lot of folks, it's very mysterious, right? Like, how does this work, right? Like, how, how, do, how, does, how does a stage play get put on? How does a performance get created, et cetera? So I think having that kind of fast track to that world um, was really great, you know, just to have access to in that way. Um, and then the film of it all, you know, I think, um, I just really loved going to the movies and my dad who is not in the arts, um, is just a big cinephile, you know, and he just really loves movies and movie movies, you know, like he he would show me Alien and Braveheart and you know the the oh the, the movies, right? Like the ones that <laughs> yeah. made us. And um and so I think it was the combination of sort of access to the the real world of being a professional in in the creative arts uh combined with sort of his enthusiasm for the magic side of it, right? Like the yeah. the um, going to the show version. So somewhere in between those two influences, I guess I kind of found myself. <laughs> well, that's such a cool way to grow up too, having the the tangibility yeah. of seeing a performance and then watching something on the silver screen. What came first yeah. for you though? Was it like the writing? Was it the directing? Or maybe it was just a general love <laughs> for the arts I think it's storytelling. I, I think it's storytelling before anything. I mean, I was really young. I think I started talking about doing this when I was like seven or something like that. You know, it, yeah, it's it was oh a God. long time. Um, and I think it was it was stories, right? So like having a little journal and writing down stories. I was obsessed with like Greek mythology and um you know, uh, my, my father is from Iran. So sort of stories from other parts of the world were always really exciting to me. And, and so I think just falling in love with um, books, I guess, stories and books, uh, and then starting to write my own stuff. And then I think, again, the directing just felt very, um, 
very natural because again, uh, how, you know, how performance art works is the performer is directing their own piece, right? So I would see my mom sort of ideate a performance, right? She would have sort of these things that she wanted to put together and then she would take that idea to the stage, right? And it would materialize. And so that's really what we're doing, right? Um, and so I think being exposed to that process it just felt very organic to me. And so that idea of, of bringing a story from page to, in this case, page to stage, and for <laughs> me, it was page to screen, um, you know, really it's the same thing. Uh, it was very, um, it just felt like that's where the meat and potatoes is, you know, like that's, yeah. that's the, that's the challenge. That's the intellectual challenge. It's the logistical challenge. It just felt like that's where the, the magic was really happening. Right. Um, so I think it just felt very natural. I mean, I think I did my, um, like in, in fourth grade, they make you do like a little book report, right? On like, what career do you want? Oh, no. <laughs> and I, I think it's so funny. I think I did, mine was on Julie Taymor, who was doing the the uh, Broadway, um, you know, she was doing directing Broadway plays at the time is Lion King <laughs> and all the crazy shit. So I, I think it was always just very, I was just very drawn to that. Um, I was just very drawn to that. And then I think, you know, that that just continued, right? Because uh, my generation, I think we're very, very lucky. We're the generation of like handy cams and the first IMAX. Mm. And the, I remember my IMAX, it was the turquoise blue. It was the, my <laughs> most prized possession. Uh, you know, the, this was a huge deal that we got one in the house. Um, and it came with iMovie. So you had, yeah, so, so it had, it had all, everything you needed, right? Um, and you could, you know, sort of find a, hand, a, a little camera, somebody to borrow from a friend or something, and you can shoot, you can edit, and you can export. Done. That's everything you need to know. Um, and so I think growing up in that, at that time of access to technology was very exciting. And it had, it sort of taught you the flow of it. So I was kind of editing stuff. I would do these little videos, put it to like Bjork music or some crazy <laughs> shit, you know, just, just playing, just playing, right? You're, you're 11 years old or something and you're, um, you're making little movies and, and it's not, uh, it, it, it's not a, it's not a, it was not a, um, you weren't reaching for the moon. It was very accessible. It wasn't like, you know, the previous generation I think was on 16 mil, right? They had the little Bolex cameras and editing and putting everything together was very complicated, right? You needed a projector, you needed all this sort of these steps. And we had it all in this one little iMac, right? Like everything you needed, you could do your sound, you could put music behind stuff, all this stuff. And so it really just, I really credit, um, not to be a shell for, for Apple here, but I think the, um, I think having access to all of those softwares at such an early age was great. So by the time I was going to film school, we all knew how to edit, right? Like we all, we had been editing shit for five years at that point, right? Maybe longer, 10 years of, of making little movies. So I think just that, that leap in technology um, was, was really, it was good timing for, for me to sort of explore the film side of it and not just, cause I was doing theater at the same time, but to oh, be wow. able to be making little, little movies and stuff with my friends in high school and all that um, was just really valuable. So yeah, that's it, my long answer. <laughs> no, no, that's a perfect answer because I feel like a lot of people, yeah, it is complicated, um, you know, utilizing 16 mil and, and editing and cutting and splicing and doing all that, creating the soundtrack. But mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, what we had growing up, 
with iMac, with iMovie. For me, it was Windows Movie Maker until I hit high school, and that was another yeah. thing. Uh, but <laughs> you you had this. We were this... always a Mac family, by the way, because of my mom. So we had like, oh, really? we had the Performa million. Like, we, we were a Mac family because of my mom. She was always like, Macintosh is for artists. And, you know, now she's very upset, right, that they've gone the consumer path. But, yeah. but in the 90s, in the 90s, I'm aging myself, in the 90s, um, when I was growing up, 90s and early aughts, it was very designed for artists. So you had Photoshop, you had all this this amazing software, you know, that that worked very quickly and you had access to on your little your little desktop, you know. So anyway, I'm sorry, I got you off. No, 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 it's... I completely agree because I didn't notice that until uh, getting into high school and diving into Final Cut Pro, which is something that I had <laughs> bootlegged uh, through LimeWire yeah. years before. Mm-hmm. And you're already familiar. Oh, yeah. So this new work ethic is instilled upon editors in high school. In you know, I graduated in 2010. So mm-hmm. like from that point on, if you weren't utilizing that, you were you know lazy. <laughs> so I completely yeah. like I. I don't know. I just, I connect with everything you said about, you know, being an artist going through all that, you know, while you're in high school, making movies with your friends and how that has really benefited, you know, your, uh, I guess, even the start to your career, so to speak. So you already know what you're doing before you get to film school. You you already know, you're already learning. I, I mean, montage, you're already learning what a close up is, what a wide shot is, how to, you know, how to use a tripod so that it doesn't look like super shitty, you know, like you start figuring out if I lock it this way and I move it this way, you know, you're already starting to figure it out. And um, yeah, I just think our generation really had a, we had a real leg up because of that access to software and technology was, was great. Yeah. Where, where did you go to film school? If you don't mind me asking. I went to NYU. So I went to NYU Tisch. Um, and it was great. You know, that was the dream, I think, for a long time. I think, like, basically my entire high school career, I guess. I don't know how you're supposed to refer to high school. But the the <laughs> entire time was sort of designed with the interest of going to NYU. I had um, an amazing arts professor who really um, encouraged me, I think, and, and was excited uh, that I was so focused on it. And so, you know, he helped me put together, like, my the film that I submitted as my, you know, submission. And... Um, you know, he really, I guess we kind of made like a bit of a private study kind of thing because he would help me. Um, I had a little corner in the arts <laughs> in like the media center that had like Final Cut Pro on it. And it had, you know, it, I had my little camera cabinet and stuff. So I think he was he was excited that somebody really gave a shit about this stuff. And so he really um, he really helped make the time and, and helped to. Uh, you know, that, that junior year putting together like a really strong film submission um, to get in. And then, you know, film school is film school. I think the, the debates about film school are all perfectly valid and very healthy, I think, and important because it is extraordinarily expensive for what is basically an arts degree, you know? Um, and, and I think that's real. I think that's a real conversation that is very important to be had. For me, it was the right move. I met people who to this day um, I work with, um, they're my team. Uh, we had access to like professional level film sets, you know, it was like all that kind of stuff. Um, I think for us was, was, was the move. Um, but again, a lot of people dropped out and just went out and did their own thing. And, you know, uh, there's there's many different paths I think, but for me NYU was was the was the move, and I I also was lucky enough to land again you know great teachers in your life. I was lucky enough to land um, 
you know, I think sophomore year on, I was working for one of the directing professors at NYU. And so, yeah, so she, I was basically her, her TA and she was very old, <laughs> very, very old woman who really couldn't do very much physically. Like she, she was yeah. sharp as a tack, but uh, you know, she was, she, you know, she had a little stroller thing and she couldn't really get around very well. So I really did everything for her class, for her workshops, the directing workshops, the acting for camera workshops. So again, having access to people who really were excited that you were excited and gave you access to that stuff was, you know, invaluable for me. Um, and she was just a treasure trove of knowledge. She was a I think one of the first women probably in the original director's unit, which was um, like Ilya Kazan's workshop, basically, uh, oh. back back oh. in the day. <laughs> she's, I'm telling you, she's, she's up there in age. <laughs> um, but so she would have these stories, you know, about sitting in the row and Marilyn was being so loud and making, and she kept laughing and you're like, Marilyn Monroe? Like... <laughs> So that's, that was her world, you know, it was like Arthur Miller was there and Elia Kazan and all these amazing, yeah. So just being around that was yeah. really great. And you're just a sponge, right? Like you're just trying to soak in all the information you can. Um, so yeah, she was very old school, right? Like method, hmm. um, method directing, method acting. Um, but all that, all that stuff sort of combines for you in film school when you're trying to find yourself. Hmm. Um and, and I just, uh, I, I would be very different filmmaker, I think, if I didn't have all that, all those influences at that time. So, yeah, I, I'm jealous just hearing that. I mean, I, <laughs> my university I went to was great. Don't get me wrong. It's, it was in Denver, but yeah, you know, that none of that was there. So that's just, that's insane. And it, with that comes so many, uh, I guess, so many people who you can look up to and, and idolize through the life they had lived before. But did you have any uh, any filmmakers or artists you looked up to before you went to college as far as not to to match their uh, career with the one you want to build, but just, you know, artists that you looked up to? Did you have anybody in mind when you were, you know, director, yeah. right? Of course. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was really young, um, I loved Tim Burton, like when I was like a kid, you know, um, <laughs> and it wasn't even like his films. Obviously, I loved his films, but um I think I had, I got a copy of his sketches or something. And I was really, I think I was probably like 12 or something like that. And, um, and I just loved his total uh, ownership of his own style. And I thought that was so exciting and fun. And so um, I think just that idea of doodling and journaling and like making, creating your own universes, creating your own worlds uh, was very inspiring to me. Um, as a kid. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, for me, the big thing is I'm, I'm a huge science fiction nerd. So <laughs> um, I think, you know, seeing 2001, A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner were, were two pretty seminal moments for me. Um, I saw 2001 when I was really, really young uh, and then was sort of obsessed with it for a long time. I'm still obsessed with that movie. I don't really understand how the fuck that movie what's going on you know that movie is yeah. insane from start to finish um so that's just like a perennial sort of um black hole of interest for me that movie is um so obviously Kubrick that's that's all to say Kubrick was was the guy um and then of course being from New York I was a big Scorsese 
gal, you know, that was, <laughs> that was always the, that was, you know, I just, and, and actually my favorite was Mean Streets was the first one, you know, that was just, wow. that was the raw, the raw, the most raw, um, the most sort of like really felt like New York to me. Um, and uh, so he was a big deal. Uh, I went through my French New Wave phase in high school, like everybody else. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I did that whole thing. And yeah, you know, you kind of take your journey through, um, through, through film history. And then um, in college really was when I discovered uh, horror. So um, I didn't really like get into horror movies, I would say until really like later in college. Um, I think because my dad was really scared of horror movies. Really? <laughs> so... <laughs> Like the the furthest he would go is Alien. Like we watched Alien together and we loved Alien, but that was more sci-fi, you know? Like we would watch Star Trek together and you know, <laughs> we were we were more sci-fi people. Um so I worked at a video store in college. Very, you know, sort of oh, cliche. Um, yeah, and and so that was really where I was like, Hellraiser, what the fuck is this? You know, like this looks crazy. <laughs> and started really exploring horror and that kind of stuff. But that was that was later. So um yeah, yeah, I would say those are like the main, uh, the main influences. I, I really in high school got into Wong Kar Wai and Hong Kong cinema. So that was like a big um, sort of opening, I guess, for me of, of like, whoa, this is cool. Like just the cool <laughs> factor of it, you know, like why yeah. is this, why is Tony Lung the coolest motherfucker on the face of the earth, you know? Like, <laughs> put a pair of sunglasses <laughs> on that guy and he's like the coolest dude. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I would say, you know, Italian cinema as well, um, you know, watching Dolce Vita and, and so international cinema also um, in high school was was very exciting. So it's it's a real discovery process, right? Like yeah. I think every filmmaker, you start with the films that your family watches together, right? That's the beginning. And then, you know, one day you go to movie theater and they're playing Apocalypse Now and you watch it and your mind is completely reformatted, right? Like, <laughs> oh my God, I didn't even know you could tell stories like this, you know? Um, so I, I think that that journey of discovery, we all have it, but we just kind of have it in different, we take different sort of tributaries and <laughs> paths <laughs> to get to that, that opening, that experience of opening your eyes to... Um, different ways of telling stories and different characters and different um, parts of the world. And yeah. so that, that I think was, that is a universal experience that all filmmakers have at some point. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And having, I haven't had the good fortune of watching Imitation Girl yet, but having oh. <laughs> watched Lucky and my girlfriend and I have essentially bonded through horror films throughout our entire relationship and us absolutely loving the film. I do see you know, those influences you were talking about in little pieces within the film that just, and it just, I don't know, it's this, how did I describe it? It is a s'mores level, like bite of just pure mm -hmm. deliciousness as a film. It is incredible. The message it has yeah. is amazing. The, the look every, I mean, just everything about it was so captivating. And now you are, it, it seems like you're venturing out into more of the, you know, horror genre do you feel like that's something you want to stick with for a little bit? Or are you just kind of, you know, going with what feels right gut-wise? Oh, I, I love horror. Yeah, no, I, I really love horror. Um, I, I think, you know, that again, that was something me and my friends, I think, really discovered together. Um, and I mean, I remember me and my my best friend from from 
age six or something, you know, we, we went to see the descent together, you know, like just starting to, yeah, I love the descent. Okay. Um, (laughs) We got to unpack that, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) but you know, just that bonding experience. I think that you, you bond with the person next to you when you're watching a horror movie in a really special way. Right. That's like a real experience that we're having together. So I think that getting into going to see like midnight screenings and, um, you know, renting horror movies and watching them with your friends, like that was a really exciting part of my adult life. Um, and so that it, it has a, um, obviously the stuff you grow up with is really special, but it was a really exciting time for me to to push myself and be like, wow, cool. So how do they, how did they make this scary? Like, I know what's happening. I know that there's sound design and they're, they're just not, there's no light in that part of the room. That's why you're scared of it. But, but how, right? Like it really feels like a real fucking magic trick. And that always stuck in my head. I was like, how do you make a scene tense like that? You know, cause it's not, it, it's not reality, but you're feeling real emotions, right? Like it's, it's, it's a real response to something that is so crafted. Um, and, and I thought that was just very exciting to me because I, I am very interested in craft, right? Like the, that's also the science fiction of it. And the, I'm, I'm interested in creating worlds, not just doing like a verite approach. Um, you know, again, talking about French New Wave, that was a, it was a brief love affair with French New Wave. And then I was like, okay, let's, let's keep going, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's more here to, to explore. Um, and even when in French New Wave, I was more into like the Alphaville or the um, uh, Melier, fil- uh, not Melier, Melville films or Melier, right? Like Mel- yeah. the, the original uh, sort of magic trick stuff was more exciting to me than the straight documentary verite approach. So that's all to say horror is like sort of the it's the ultimate articulation of craftsmanship, right? Because you are really crafting something. People are just in a room together. There's nothing scary about that, right? Like there it's, it's, you're really crafting the experience from the ground up. So anyway, that's the nerdy, the nerdy answer to, I I just think it's, it's, it's really, um, it's really challenging. And I, I really love that. And people go into horror movies wanting to be scared, but you still gotta take them there, you know? Um, lucky, I would say is interesting because it's, it's a satire. It's not really a horror movie. You know what I mean? It is a horror. It is a horror movie. Don't, I don't mean to say that it is a horror movie because horror is myriad, right? Like horror is a, is a, um, horror is a really broad umbrella and within it, there is comedy, there is terror, there is all these other things. So to me, Lucky is really a satire. Um, I call it like the skin of a slasher movie. You know, it's really a satire wearing a slasher movie on it, on top of what it really is. Um, and so I think I'm very excited by movies who, who that find that junction of it's wearing, it's, it is a horror movie, it's wearing the horror movie skin, but then there is something else that you realize you're watching about halfway through, right? So you're, you're, um, you're, you're watching a, a, a horror movie and you realize, oh, this is a satire, right? Like this is a Eugene Inesco-esque kind of uh, exploration of, of how women get through their lives in our society. So I, I'm very excited by that junction of horror and something else. Yeah, I think that's what makes it stand out above films that have tried to do this uh, similar story before you know like this this never-ending and i actually it's like the the since the inception of the slasher it's the killer that can't be killed and keeps coming back right but the i think the trailer did enough with it to say 
you know, oh yeah, there there are slasher elements, but there's a piece of this you need to watch the movie to find out, you know, what it is. There's something inside this box. And mm-hmm. as we were watching it, I, I, we just couldn't look away. I don't think I talked to her the, through the entire film, which usually like if you're sitting with somebody that you love, it's you're like, oh my God, check this. We didn't say a single word. Like we giggled <laughs> when things were way too uncomfortable and the satire <laughs> really pierced through. And I'm like, I want to shake the husband so bad. Where is, yeah. you know, there's just, and I won't, listeners, I won't spoil anything about the film in case you haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's on Shudder, so watch it. Um, but I do love that, that, like you said, that junction. It's, just looped me right in and now like you became one of my favorite filmmakers within a single movie I'm like I can't just can't wait to see what else she does and then as we mentioned before which I we won't get into but you know you were announced to take part in another film Mm -hmm. yeah I'm doing a a VHS uh, segment for VHS 1985 um, which is really cool and it's it's pretty wild shit like there I can't believe the it's an amazing lineup. It's an incredible lineup of filmmakers. And it is just, you know, I'm, I'm feel like a baby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just incredible, incredible people who I really respect. Scott Derrickson, of course, a legend in the horror community. Um, and uh, David Bruckner, who I think is one of the most interesting filmmakers working yeah. right now. I'm lucky enough to, to, um, we have a, we have a really beautiful friendship and um, he's just, he's a really thoughtful filmmaker. Uh, who is conjures up these just really um, sort of earth shattering visuals with his films that are so closely linked to what's happening emotionally that, you know, it's not even the plot, it's not even what's happening. It is something, some deeper connection that he's able to make. And um, I've, I've just been fascinating with, fascinated with his work. The Ritual is the first film of his that I saw um, that really blew me away. And then, uh, you know, he, he's done a bunch of anthology pieces, including VHS. He's on the original VHS. And um, he has a really beautiful film, I think, from last year called The Night House. That's equally challenging. Yeah, yeah. just really beautiful filmmaking. So um, they're, they're on it. Um, Mike Melson, who's a really, Mike P. Melson, who's a really exciting filmmaker. And then uh, my friend Gigi Salguero, who is a really fun kind of grindhouse <laughs> filmmaker from Mexico. So she'll cook up something really, really <laughs> fucking crazy, I'm sure. So um so yeah, it's just an incredible lineup of, of horror people. And I am, I'm really excited to be a part of it. So, I mean, tell us what, what's, what's your segment about? Uh, is there a monster? Is it, what's the story? Give us all of the snippets, all the spoilers. I, I, can't I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> no, I can't get into it. I think the, the VHS producers will be really mad at me. Um, <laughs> I will say we've we've filmed um, we filmed a lot of the segments already, so you guys oh, cool. people won't have to wait too long for it to come out. Um, oh. But I I will say I think it's okay for me to say you know I think people see '80s and they kind of think like oh roll of the eyes like Stephen King mm-hmm. Stranger Things nostalgia like sort of sweet there's a lightness, I think, associated to the 80s nostalgia. And this film, I think, is really going to challenge that because all of these filmmakers are, are interested in, we're interested in big ideas. And I think we're all, um, we're taking a very different tack to the 80s. So oh, shit. <laughs> it won't be the light and fluffy 80s nostalgia. I can, I can say that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm excited for that. I Like I said before, I won't, um, you know, twist anything because I don't want to know anything, you know, yeah. either way as a VHS fan. And uh, I don't know, just I don't want to say congratulations for that because that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, just awesome. you get to make your your own segment and show off all these crazy styles that you've you've accumulated. But yeah. uh, I do want to ask you about, you know, your your writing process and 
you know, as a, as a writer myself, I just love hearing about the various processes that people go through to create a screenplay. Some are absolutely bonkers and crazy, which I mean, if you're a writer, you have to be, but uh, what sort of process do you have? Is it, is it outline outlining? Do you have different dry erase boards? Do you write on plywood and wash it <laughs> off and write over again? Like what's your... <laughs> My process has honestly really changed. Um, hmm. It's, it's changed and it's not changed. I think that I've brought a lot more structure to my process, which has been really good for me. Um, I mean, just to just to take a little step back talking about NYU, I will never forget that a uh, one of the professors, uh, you know, sort of, we, we were having a, a meeting about, you know, and it was like a feature screenplay, narrative screenplay class. And she kind of sat me down. She's like, you're a really strong director, but I just, I just don't know if writing is for you. You know, she was basically like, maybe you're just not a writer. And I was like, bitch, what? Uh, and that really, you know, that kind of like stuck in my head. I was like, oh God, maybe, maybe I am just, a, maybe I just come to other people's work, whatever. Um, so I always thought that was funny. And by the way, I'm now writing a studio project. So shove it up your ass. <laughs> when people tell you, when people tell you that, don't listen to them, you know, just use it as, as a fuel for the fire to, to get better at what you're doing. So that's all to say, you know, I think originally my, my writing was very focused on my filmmaking, which is to say, I really, I had these sort of things that I wanted to see on screen. And so I would sort of back channel the writing and the screenplay into what I wanted to create. And obviously that's not the way to do it, right? So the, my scripts would have like these really cool sort of set pieces and, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be that engaging uh, of a, um, you know, like where where are we going? How do the characters relate? Like all that kind of stuff I think was, was interesting to me from an intellectual perspective, but I wasn't um, as interested in like blocking out that arc for those characters. I was more interested in like what the set pieces were and that kind of stuff. Again, you're young, right? Like you're in high school, you're in college, you're out of college, you know, that's, you're exploring, right? Like you're, you're, you're not going to come out the womb, you know, perfectly fully formed. Uh, you have to get there, you have to build, you have to kind of follow your interests. So um, that's all to say, I think once I started getting paid to write, that was when um, I really got more strict with myself um, because you have to balance your own interest with what the audience needs. And so I think that that was the most important thing for me was like, can an audience really track what's happening here, right? Like yeah. sacrifice a set piece if you need to, because we need to have people be able to follow you through this story. Um, and of course there's plenty of films that don't follow that, right? Like we were talking about Wong Kar Wai, that dude couldn't give a shit. He's like, listen, <laughs> either you're with me or you're not, <laughs> that's on you. And that's great. Uh, and I enjoy to watch it, but I don't, that's not necessarily the films that I wanna make. I, I think I want to have an audience with me and we go on this journey together. So I think that's sort of the crux of it. Um, I, I, uh, I, I make these big maps. So I have like a big um, like artist pad and then I'll just map out sort of like act one, act two, act three, and then just sort of like do, it's more of a um, like geometry. <laughs> like I can't start on a computer. I need yeah. to be pencil and paper. I need to like sort of feel it in a more organic way. Um, and then, but you can do that till the cows come home. So I think at a certain point you have to kind of cut yourself off and start putting words down because then all of the weak points are exposed. So it starts as sort of a, um, 
more sort of an abstract blue sky, roughly structured thing that sometimes includes doodles or, you know, like they're very sort of, um, it's not a word document that's in an outline. Um, I will also say, you know, the last few big projects I've worked on have been adaptations. So like um, last year I was doing a, uh, I was adapting a Joe Hill short story um, and uh, I'm adapting another big uh, sort of, uh, I guess like lit literary <laughs> short story, like a piece of literature is, is something else I'm adapting right now. And finding, I think really delving into that first and having that small piece that you know is gonna be a part of it finding where it fits, plugging it in, getting that done, right? Like feeling like, sometimes I'll even type out that entire scene. So my outline will have chunks that have dialogue in it, right? Because if I'm pulling from a story and I know I want this dialogue in here, I'll just put it right in. So the, but it, you know, using a different font. So when you look at it, it's like the outline is in Arial or whatever. And then the, the script parts, I'll just go ahead and use Courier. So you can kind of start oh, to see, okay. okay, this scene is already basically built and then a bunch of shit happens and then this scene is built. So then, and then it's less scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> then it's less intimidating because it's like, oh cool, I already have this scene in the middle of act two written. And now you're just sort of putting the connective tissue between stuff. So that was a big helpful thing for me, um, but that's specific to adapting stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm not really answering your question. No, no, you are. because. <laughs> Honestly, I, I feel like no one has, unless you've been doing this for, for decades, and I've talked to a few, mm -hmm. a few people who've been writing for decades, and they, they have their system, right? But at least for uh, where people are right now who are, you know, really building their careers, things are ever changing. And I love just the visual of the adaptation outline and having those chunks of dialogue in the scene. Like it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge nerd when it comes to the writing process. So even yeah. <laughs> I, I prefer the question to not be answered with, Oh yeah, I use the uh, 40 note card method. Like, okay. Yeah, no, no. I think you have to find what works for you. I think the really frustrating thing, and this is something with experience I've just learned to accept is there will be days when you just don't, you can't make anything productive. And I think it's because, and I think a lot of writers talk about this. They call it like the background processing of you're just banging your head against the wall. I mean, I remember at one point and I was like three weeks away from deadline and I was like, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to make it. Like, I can't do this. You know, I don't see the path. The path is not clear to me. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this is impossible. I'm a garbage writer. I'm a garbage human. Like I can't do anything, whatever. And then one day you're cooking, you know, lunch and boom, there it is. And it, you know, the computer clicks, it pops out an answer and you're like, okay, cool. And that's because your brain is, a, is, a, is mechanical, right? Like your brain, you're, you're, you need to make those connections, those sort of like neural <laughs> connections um, in order for your brain to sort of process, process, process. And then as a writer, I think your responsibility is to, when that happens, get to work. Like then you need to drop what you're doing. You need to focus. And that's when you have those like five, six hour writing sessions where you just like pop out the big chunk. And then of course you go in and you change everything. But that, that I think that those, those two days of hating yourself and ruminating and then that, you know, that three day, that's three days of writing. It's just yeah. two days of hating yourself and one day of actually getting words <laughs> on paper. But all three days are days of screenwriting. Um, and that sucks. Like it sucks. Yeah. Writing is really hard. <laughs> I feel so seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
you know, writers uh, are, are honest about that. And, yeah. you know, to be completely honest, and, and I have friends who, who say this, and I respect their work and all that, nothing bugs me more than the people who are like, oh, I wrote this in four days. And I'm just like, <laughs> did you? Did you though? Because that's bullshit. You were thinking about this for two months. You sat down and you put pages out in four days, which also, yeah. I don't get that. But uh, <laughs> that, it's not true. It's not true. You were thinking about it. You were jotting down notes. You, you know, you were, you were typing notes in your phone, you know, like that's all part of the creative process. So it kind of bugs me when people are like, I wrote this in four days. I wrote this in six days. And it basically didn't change. And you're like, okay. Sometimes you're like, maybe it should have changed. <laughs> maybe the development process has some merit, you know? <laughs> now I just want to see you on a panel with other writers. Oh and somebody God, mentions that to, so we can zoom in on the eye roll that you're <laughs> going to try to see. <laughs> oh yeah. Good for them. Great. Wonderful. Good for That's you. A- I'm very happy for you. I'm sure your life is really great and easy, but <laughs> the rest of us have to fucking struggle the whole way through. Well, speaking of the the honesty of that portion of the craft, actually, I've never asked this before. It'd be interesting to to find out. But do you have an imposter syndrome remedy for days like that, where you do feel like you're just a garbage writer or you're a garbage director? Like, I just I need to go do talk to other people, reach out to other creatives. I think that's the only thing because if you stew in your own head, um, the anxiety wins, right? Like, you're not going to win that battle. You're you're just not. The brain is too powerful. Um, It's very tricky and demonic. (laughs) I think those are the moments when I pick up the phone. I'm very lucky. My husband is is um, is an incredible creative himself, but he's a cinematographer, so he works with cameras and lighting and lenses. And so, I think he's a really good person to talk to because he has access to it, but he's also not like trying to give solutions, you know? Sometimes if you talk to another writer, they're like, well, have you tried this, this, and this? And I'm like, that's not what I'm coming to for. I just want to commiserate. Um, (laughs) So I think talking to somebody who's going to just let you be in your feelings, um, sometimes talking to other writers is good. You know, hey, I'm really, I'm really stuck on this. Um, Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to, you know, can we have a quick let's talk on the phone for half an hour, you know, just reaching out and getting those, getting it out and and saying, it's okay that I'm feeling this way. And um, I mean, I remember I reached out to my friend and I was like, I don't think I can do this. Like I, I, they hired me for this gig and obviously they believe that I can do it, but I don't see a path forward. You know? <laughs> and it was good because she was like, man, I'm feeling the same way. She's like, I'm working on something right now. And I just, I pitched one thing and now I'm trying to make it work and I don't think it's working and I have to pivot. And so I think just communication, because mm. the thing is we all, we're all feeling it. And the problem is the perception that we have of the people around us, right? This is Instagram, this yeah. is social media. This is like the curse of the internet age is you just post the good stuff, right? And and I'm not saying anything new or exciting, but it, it's just when you pick up the phone and you talk to a real human being, you will get back what you need, I think, yeah. um, if that person is a good friend. <laughs> right. um, yeah, that's that's the only that's the only remedy is just to say, yeah. I feel like I can't do it, you know, like I, I'm feeling this way, like, and just knowing that other people are also feeling that way sometimes is what you need. Yeah. Um, 
And I think letting go of this idea of what your career is supposed to be, right? So you spend so much time, you spend the first, what, 20 years of your life planning who you're going to be as an adult. And here you are, I'm 34 years old. Like, I didn't think I'd be, I didn't think I'd have this old ass dog, you know, but I love him and I'm so happy, right? Like you, you, surprises happen in your life and beautiful things happen. And so you, you only open yourself up to those things happening if you let go of that spurious idea of who you were supposed to be. So, you know, you go through, you're like, I'm going to be fucking Martin Scorsese. Okay, Martin Scorsese isn't Martin Scorsese. You know what I mean? It's, it's letting go of that complete bullshit fantasy of how life is supposed to happen, how your career is supposed to happen. And the reality is most of us are just going from day to day to day. And that's it, you know, including the high profile people who you thought you wanted to be. Um, so I think letting go of that is, and it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult. Um, but, you know, that's, it, it, and it's, it's not just career, right? It's like, oh, I, uh, you, if I lost 10 pounds, then I'd be perfect. You know what I mean? It's that thing. It's that thing that we all do. And you, you, that's it, baby. That's your body. <laughs> you know, <laughs> enjoy it. Go use it, go for a hike, you know? So I think that that reevaluation and, and kindness to yourself is really the only way to, to get through it. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. The, and the idea of letting go is something I'm 10 years into this this acting thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as I let go right after I turned 30, that's when I started booking a hell of a lot more. How many times have I heard that? Oh, what so the true. fuck? It's so true. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. So I appreciate you bringing that up because I think the listeners of this particular podcast need to hear that as well. Just mm -hmm. separating that and... um you know, you, you brought up being kind to yourself. And this also, you know, we talked about the imposter uh, syndrome remedy, but what do you do to decompress just from, you know, your your day to day when you are writing, when you are on set? Do you have a, a process or like things you like to do to kind of relax and get out of it? This is extraordinarily important. And I would actually say, I would suggest that you reframe the question to like, what what do you do to bring pleasure into your life? Ooh. Because the idea of what do you do on your off time or what do you do on while you relax is inherently problematic mm. because what we do is so looped in to our day to day. We don't go to an office, right? Well, maybe some of us do, but we don't, you don't go to an office and be like, okay, now I'm going to be creative from nine to five. And then I'm going to go home and watch TV. Like that's not our lives. Yeah. Our lives is, um, it, it is intense periods of intense creativity and joy more often than not, it's rejection, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's an equal, an equal balance. So I would almost reframe that to say, how are you structuring your life so that you bring, you have something outside of your career that is not something that you consider your relaxing time or your off time, but inherent and, and totally as crucial to your day-to-day -day life as the work. Yes. Okay. So what is yeah. that? right for a lot of people it's family right like oh I'm, I'm gonna spend time with my kids I'm gonna do this um uh you know I I'm a musician I play violin I love music um yeah we're right. just now getting to that what I'm a horrible interviewer what the hell okay no, because it's, it's just for me it's something that's for me you know and like once a week I I um I go to the there's a conservatory over here and I I play music and um you know that's that's really important for me and it's 
like that, that is really important for my husband. Again, I've been talking about him a lot, but this is something I bring it up because we both suffer from anxiety, right? And so we, I, we got together when we were 24, right? So we've been together for 10 years and um, it's been a journey, right? Because we were so ambitious. When I was 24, 10 years ago, <laughs> I was so ambitious. I was like, work is life. I'm gonna fucking make it as a director. This is, this is me. My entire thing is based on this shit. This is it. I even stopped playing violin, right? Like it was so intense. And maybe that was the right thing to do at that time. Maybe that's what I needed, but it had really, really, I think, destructive um, impact on, you know, your mental health and sort of how you're, how you're approaching your day. And so now we're older and wiser <laughs> and we talk about all the time, like you, you have to have other stuff going on. So for him, he, um, he's really into cars. <laughs> and so he'll go, he'll go karting, right? He'll go karting with his brother. Um, you know, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that isn't just like, oh, I have time off. I guess I'll go. It's no, every other week we do this thing. This is important. This is prioritized. Um, day to day, I love to cook. Like cooking is really important to me. I like making healthy meals that make us feel better. <laughs> um, so that's, that's sort of like a day-to-day -day thing going on walks with my dog, you know, listening to music. So, so the particulars don't matter. I think what's important is reframing your question, not to say, what do you do to relax? It's what, do, what, what brings pleasure to you in your day-to-day, -day, yeah. you know, um, and wrapping that in an equal wrapper as the work, the work and the pleasure in your life need to be coexistent yeah. <laughs> it can't be one or the other no i i couldn't agree more with that and that the the reframing of that is a hundred percent just having that be and addressing mental health as well you know with so much rejection in a business that is any business is unstable but this in particular is dog shit as far as stability goes um and i don't like the term tough skin I think that that's yeah. also really unfair. Like, again, it's a really unfair framing. Like people are like, oh, you have to have really tough skin to, to be in this industry. And it's like tough skin. I'm not a reptile. Like I wasn't born with, you know, it's like you're born with tough skin or you're not. It's no, this yeah. is a technique. It's like learning to meditate or any of these really hard things. Like <laughs> you have to, there's a technique to it. Right. And it's something you learn and you grow and you get better at, um, so again, this idea that I think is really toxic in our industry of bursting forth fully formed, able to handle rejection, you know, I don't give a shit, I'm Michael fucking Bay, I do what I want. It's bullshit, you know, like Michael Bay has his bad days too. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, you just, you, you, you start to develop a technique to, to, to get through it and to wrap it into your day-to-day -day routine. Mm -hmm. So that it is, it just feels part of the natural flow, the natural ebb and flow, the natural cycle of your day, of your career, of your year, of whatever, you know, <laughs> bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I just, I don't like the framing of a lot of this stuff. It's like, kind of rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think we are getting away from the the whole, um, like, tough skin, I hope so. uh, like, era of of making it in this this business where people who say that are often the ones that are now being you know imprisoned thankfully yeah, uh, <laughs> they're abusers right yeah, because yeah. that that verbiage that language 
enables them, right? It enables abusers. It's yep. it's like in this industry as a as a filmmaker, you're supposed to just get hit over the head over and over and over again. And if you decide you need a break your week because you didn't have tough skin, that's abusive. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. I think that's a really good point. Well I will I'm gonna steer this to something a little goofy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this is uh and this is the one question I always have a hard time asking. But it is, uh, you know, asking the guests I have on the show whether or not you have a party story you could share with our listeners. So it could be something that uh, is just maybe really hilarious, crazy, or maybe scary, but something that has such an immense impact on your life. You could easily recount it at a party amongst friends. Do you have anything within your uh, your career or your life? It doesn't have to be entertainment based. That you could share I have a story listening. that I'm not going to tell, but it, it is a Weinstein story, a New York Weinstein story, I think from like 2015 or something like that. Um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was crazy. There's some crazy shit going on, even when I was uh, even when I was a, a baby, a little baby. A baby. In thank God. Thank God. I am making movies when I'm making movies now. Like I really, I really think, um, I think I would still be making films, but I think I would not be engaging with the sort of status quo of the industry. I think that I would probably be more on the art art film side. Um, I mean, I'm still in an indie space, but I think uh, I, I would be so, I would be so um, sort of turned off by the status quo in Hollywood. Um, and it's still bad, like it's still pretty gross, but there's, there's just a lot more space, I think now for communication and conversation. And, um, you know, I'm having really good experience with, with some high end producers right now, and it's a lot more women. And, and so I think I just count my lucky stars, stars for that. Also my lucky scars, <laughs> my lucky <laughs> stars and my lucky scars, um, for sure, for, for being able to work now, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess a story that comes back to me all the time is, is just a story of bonding with your with your people. Um, I have my producing partner is a great guy named Tim Wu. Um, we run our production company together. We have been working together since sophomore year of college. Oh <laughs> um, came up through camera, so he was a camera like a DP camera operator. Um, I would often AC for him, um, or I'd be working on like the sound design side or something. So we just we came up through crew together, and so we just have a lot of. Um, just like that shared history as crew is like impossible to, you know, like recreate. Um, and so really growing up together, I think as, as filmmakers has made us really great producing partners. And now he's producing, which is amazing to have somebody with a crew background producing and he's really fucking good at it. Um, so anyway, we were on a job. Um, <laughs> we were on a job uh, I was directing. He was shooting um, for a, a really crazy producer. He's really, really nutty guy. And, uh, you know, he liked to use drugs and alcohol and he <laughs> was just coked out of his mind. We were at the Standard Hotel, Standard LA, which is a very wacky, funky place. And, um, you know, Tim and I are kind of just minding our own business. We don't partake in any of this tomfoolery. And so we're just, you know, having a beer or something, playing ping pong. Next thing we know, we just see like this naked man streak by and dive right into the pool in the standard pool. And it was this guy. <laughs> it was this guy. And of course, security is like, sir, you can't be here. He got banned from the standard, like all this stuff. And you know what Tim and I did? 
we just kept playing ping pong, you know, like, I don't know this man. I've never seen this man before <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so I just, I, I like that story because there is a degree of like, there's some crazy shit out there. And you know what? You just keep your eyes focused. <laughs> you have your buddy in the trenches and you just keep playing ping pong, you know, mind your business do your job and um you know we've 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 made it through okay despite being in some crazy situations because we just kind of like man this shit is crazy <laughs> <laughs> sir you cannot run naked coke out of your mind <laughs> through a crowded restaurant and jump into the pool oh my God. So, just tom floor you know i love those stories especially with like crew friends because you you yeah. guys are always the ones like you are laughing more than the people you're telling the story to every time you say that, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. A lot of crazy, a lot of crazy crew stories. And you know, the truth is the the real sort of value of those stories of, of being crew and, you know, just sort of sitting there while the director is losing their mind and stuff is you, you bank it all right in your head. You're like, okay, this is what not to do. <laughs> A lot of the reason Tim started producing was because he was like, this is ridiculous. You guys can't get decent food for your crew. You know, it was like, we can just do this better, you know, after all this time of being on set. Um, and so we just started producing our own for ourselves and it was better, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's kind of where it is. Sorry, my dog is repositioning himself. Do you want to <laughs> let, let him find comfort. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He's very old. Yeah, how old is your dog? He's 11. Oh. Yeah. He's a oh. rescue. Are you stuck? <laughs> yeah, he's um he moves at his own pace, I guess. Yep. <laughs> how I would describe him. Like I'm over this you telling me what to do is business. I tell I you know. what to do. <laughs> I think he, gets, he gets too warm in one spot, so he likes to kind of like go out to a different areas oh yeah that's what there he goes oh there he is listeners always saw was a furry butt yeah (laughs) the corner (laughs) well with your your career the the like amazing projects you've created the people you've worked with the the life you've had already and i can't wait to see you know what else you do in the future do you have anything you could pass along to our listeners whether it's somebody who's starting out or someone who's trying to stay in that uh, maybe you've utilized in your career that you could pass along to them yeah, I think um, for the starting outside, I think um, patience is a virtue, <laughs> but more important <laughs> than patience is um, like making sure your bases are covered. So I, I always like to talk about just the reality of what we do being, you know, you could go many months, maybe even years without working uh, and without being paid to work. <laughs> We've all been there and it's, it's really hard. So I think the question is, how do you support yourself? Make sure you're in a safe place because if you're not, if you don't feel safe, you're going to make bad decisions for your career. You're going to sort of just jump at whatever opportunity you have. And not that, not that, that, you know, you shouldn't follow every opportunity. It's just, you want to do it in a sort of way where you're, you're acting out of, um, this is a project that, that appeals to me, right? Like there's something here for me. Um, and if you need to support yourself with a second job, with a third job, uh, you know, finding that job that's going to give you the flexibility to still do that audition, right? To still drive to wherever, uh, to take that Zoom meeting, to find time to write, to, you know, so so I think being very specific about, um, it really comes down to what we were talking about before, right? Like your day-to-day, the reality of your day-to-day, your day job 
may not just be a day job, right? Like find something that is still fulfilling for you if you can. Or, you know, I worked at a coffee shop for a long time. It was amazing. You know, you get to meet amazing people. You get so many ideas. You're, you can sort of jot down ideas, um, you know, finding a way not to just look at your day job or whatever it is you're doing as, oh, this is just what I do when I'm not acting, or this is what I do when I'm not directing. Cause that's your time. That's your life, you know? And so I just, I hate that idea of, I'm just here waiting for it to end so I can get back to my other thing. And so finding ways to sort of integrate your, let's just call it a day job, but it could be whatever, um, into your creativity is going to, I think, help you feel less frustrated. Um, it's going to make you feel more financially stable, right? That's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it may be really, it may be access to a side of yourself that you wouldn't get if you were just in your apartment writing, right? Like you don't want to live in a vacuum. So, I mean, it's easier said than done. I know day jobs suck. I totally get it, but, um, <laughs> but it's a reality, you know, unless you're, you're, you're lucky enough to be born where you don't have to work for money, in which case, great. Um, but even then it's like, maybe you're, you're, you're finding the job that you wouldn't have thought you were going to get. Um, and it, maybe it pays you a little bit less, but you have three hours in the morning to do what you want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so trying to find that thing that's going to allow you to integrate your creativity and whatever other aspect of your life it is that you're juggling. Um, and that goes through the work too, even once you're getting paid for the writing or the acting or whatever. Um, the truth is you could be an established director. There, I, I mean, I am friends with directors whose names we know off the top of our head, right? Those guys are worried about next year. <laughs> Like the industry is really unstable and yeah, it's a lot of money up front. The money goes, life is expensive, you know? So it's an evergreen comment of like, how are you supporting yourself? How are you integrating your life into your creativity? And then this idea of pleasure has become really important. Um, this is something my husband and I talk about quite a bit. Like, what are we doing to not wallow? to use our time, use our day, use our weekend. Mm. Um, you know, there's this reality of like, when a movie comes out, you have this like sort of postpartum experience <laughs> of like, suddenly it's just over, right? Like after this intensity. Um, and so we were just talking like, maybe maybe we book a trip to, to Idlewild, you know, like two hours, we drive with the dog and we rent a cabin for a few days and turn off our phones. And, you know, so it's like, how do we, integrate these little things into our lives so that we can um, not get bogged down and not be in our heads all the time. Yeah. I think that's just really essential at any stage of your career. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's crucial. And it's something that all of us are working on, especially after the two years we've had and the <laughs> spiral of madness. Uh... Well, and it, continues. <laughs> it continues on. I mean, we yeah. talk about money, like I know this isn't a podcast about money but we're we as artists are typically pretty bad with money myself included like <laughs> I, I'm not good at, you know like it's 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 really hard you know to yeah. either not be totally panicked about it or to oh I got an I got a fat paycheck now I gotta fucking do all this crazy shit I've always wanted to do and so you know finding uh, going to a financial workshop um is really helpful you know educating yourself on that because we don't get that education and we are actually the people who need it the most because we don't have 401ks. We don't have, 
somebody putting part of our paycheck aside, like teach yourself how to do taxes or better yet, get a tax accountant, you know, who knows the industry. So I think all that education is something I wish I had done earlier and I'm still learning it and it's really hard, but um, you know, it's, it's finding the, that education so that you can feel a little bit more calm about the money will help you with your creativity so that you're not like constantly in a panic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, or you're not in that mode of like, Oh, things are good now, but next year I'm scared. You yeah. know, your life like that. You cannot, you can't move forward. You can't move forward with your life like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. very like real world stuff that's not fun to talk about but. <laughs> but it's needed right it has to be said and everyone has to educate themselves I, I mean myself personally if I receive a check I left my I've said this in every single episode but it's so fresh I'm still worried about it but I left my service job in July to mm-hmm. pursue this you know and just mm-hmm. thank you it's fucking frightening uh yeah. but it, it goes with that where you know you you get your check and then that check goes to bills and you go, what can I sell that I own? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's like, I'm considering starting an OnlyFans where I'm dipping my elbows in mustard. Like, it's just like the weirdest uh, way your brain can try and cope with it. But no, I think that's, that's very much needed. You know, it's not something we talk about a whole lot on this podcast, but I think we should bring it up more and more, especially now. You know? I mean, it could be interesting to get like a, like I have a friend who's a financial advisor. She was an agent for many years and she quit being an agent to be a financial advisor because she realized we don't know what the hell we're doing with our money. Yeah. <laughs> and so she talks a lot about like building a budget and because um, she understands that we could go two years without working. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to sort of have like WGA health care or any of the guild sort of support, that stuff is great, but it has an expiration date, you know, mm-hmm. like if you qualify, you have it for X amount of time and then it's gone and you need to book another job. And so how do you sort of be smart about all that stuff? Um, mm-hmm. she, she's a really interesting person to talk to. And, and I think just generally like understanding how taxes work and... <laughs> to build a budget that kind of stuff this is all stuff i'm terrible at by the way i say this this is aspirational (laughs) i'm not good at this but i know enough to know that i should know it (laughs) you make it sound so convincing you shouldn't have said that you it was so it was right there (laughs) oh it's crazy i mean now once just wait until then you have a business account and then you have your personal and then your business so it gets really crazy but um (laughs) Well, I, uh, before we, we wrap up this episode, I do want to ask if there's anything that we can promote with this, uh, this episode. I know lucky for sure I'm promoting because I, just, I love that movie, but is there anything else I can promote for you, whether it's an organization, a charity, something you really believe in anything I can, I can place in the show notes for yeah, you. Thank you for the support of lucky. And I think if people are fans of the VHS, um, movies, they have a, they have a new movie 99 that's coming out soon on shutter. Uh, a lot of my friends worked on it. Um, great, great group of folks. And then, you know, keep your eyes peeled for 85 next year. Um, I would say, you know, there's, um, I am Iranian American and there's a very sort of exciting, important, scary, terrifying thing happening in other parts of the world. Um, not just in Iran and Ukraine, uh, all over in South America. And uh, I think whether or not you feel motivated to support uh, the movement in Iran right now, um, you know, even if it's just reposting on social media or just educating yourself, I think just more generally um, 
keeping your eyes open, like download an international news podcast if you don't have one on your phone. Like don't just listen to American news. Um, BBC Global News is really good. Uh, you know, find, find a way to be aware of what's happening around the world because it affects us, it affects our industry and it really affects us as creatives. Um, you know, as artists, I think we hopefully <laughs> err on the side of um, anti-authoritarianism, of being against dictators and dictatorships in all forms and supporting the fight for, for freedom and autonomy around the globe. Um, so I think we really need to be aware of what, what people around the world are doing as Americans. We're so blessed and privileged to be in this place um, as complicated and fucked up as it is. <laughs> um, we do have voice, we have a voice. And so um, using your creative voice and your ability to access the internet and podcasts and journalism, um, I, I just wanna encourage, if one person downloads an international news podcast off of this interview, then I'll be very, very happy. So <laughs> um, yeah, that we, we, are, we are all part of a, a global family um, fighting against um, dictators and, uh, you know, the, 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 fight for freedom in Iran is the same as our fight for freedom here. Mm -hmm. It's just taking different shapes. So we're all in this together. And um, yeah, storytelling will just very important right now to be aware of everybody's stories and support each other in this, this big fight, because it is more than, oh, Michael Myers is coming to kill me. It yeah. is actually about creativity, authorship, and being free. No, I, thank you for bringing that up. I don't, I don't think anyone has, um, has mentioned uh, international news podcasts or international news sources like BBC uh, that is incredibly important so listeners I mean it's you're listening to this I mean this is an, an hour I hope you would listen to something else a little more um, I don't know uh, informative <laughs> not to say that this isn't informative but you know pay attention to global events and make sure that you are aware of everything that's happening because like you said before put yourself in a, a bubble or a shell you sit in your apartment um, and you go outside, the world's just going to collapse in on you like right away. Uh, and you won't be able to, to lend your voice. That's right. And, and as creatives, um, I think you'll be really uh, inspired probably by stories from around the world, you know, and, and sort of characters and events and um, maybe something will will spark for you and you'll sort of deep dive into Iranian mythology and sort of like, why, why are Iranians like this? You know, it's like, oh, cause they had an empire for thousands of years. And, you know, where does language come from? Where does art come from? You know, all those things are all part of our creative DNA. So I just yeah. urge people to, to yeah, be, be a member of the global community. That's all it is. Boom. There it is. You heard it. <laughs> I, I, I have one thing I have to do before we say goodbye to this recording. Uh, and that is our awkward goodbye. But I do want to say thank you so much for, for coming on to the show. I was so happy when, you know, you, you showed an interest. And I'm glad we had a chance to sit down and chat. And I saw your pupper even for just a second. Uh, but I do have what we call an awkward goodbye. And it's uh, loosely based on a scene from Wayne's World. Uh, essentially, what I'll do is I'll give you a silent Wayne's World countdown. Uh, imagine this microphone is a camera. And I'm just going to count three, two, one. When I point to you, give us your best verbal awkward goodbye, and I'll end the recording from there. Is that does that sound good? Can you be awkward? <laughs> I'll try verbal goodbye. Okay, so all right. all right, I won't prepare anything. I'm just gonna say what comes. Don't, to don't even think about it. Don't okay. even think about it. Right? Yeah. Here we go. In. Chodah Hafez. Goodbye. <laughs>